Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome to the On The Tape Podcast. I am Dan Nathan, joined, as always, by Guy Adami and Danny Moses. And we have a very special guest today. And, Stu, you've been doing this all year with us. I think it's the day after the FOMC meetings. That would be Stuart Sopp. He is the CEO and co-founder of Current. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Just for our audience, they can't see Stuart, but he's, what do they call it when you're sort of like rocking something, Dan? Yeah, they call you rocking it. Well, he's rocking his Nakatomi Plaza Christmas party, 1988. It's a, cl- it's a classic. Sweatshirt. And as Stu said, and he's correct, the greatest Christmas movie of all time, Die Hard. Damn right. That is. Well, Come we- to LA. It'll be great. We'll have a few laughs. <laughs> Listen, we got a lot to cover here because every sort of cheesy thing you could come up with about what's going on here in the last couple of weeks of the year in the stock market, whether it's your Santa Claus rally or Christmas came early for Wall Street or Goldilocks, all that sort of stuff. It's all being thrown in there right now. So we got a lot to cover with what happened with the what's going on in the markets, what our expectations are for 2024. We love having Stu on here because despite the fact that, let's say, Guy, Danny, and I might look back in anger a little bit about this year, you've had a really good beat, Stu, on the U.S. consumer. That has a lot to do with, I think, the sort of customers that you serve at Current. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But Guy, let's get into it here, man, because I think that we've talked about this now since November 1st, since the last Fed meeting. We had that November 13 CPI print. I think in general, general, most investors have been very comfortable with the fact that the hiking cycle is done, right? And so just the reaction factor to the notion that the Fed just pivoted, that they're actually pulling forward the rate cutting cycle, that's the thing that's caught me a little bit off guard. And I know, Danny, you've been in the camp for, I think, at least a month, I think since that early Nov period, that the chase is on, right? So no matter how bearish you are about the economy, it's something different going on in the markets, guys. So let's just talk about that dynamic right now, because that's the thing that I think is grabbing all the headlines right now. And it's really, I think it's presented a level of enthusiasm that to me feels very unnatural or unhealthy as we head into the new year. Wednesday of this week, obviously, was the day that the exuberance got to levels. And you know, I don't want to say the palm waving, but a lot of I told you so's, a lot of victory laps, a lot of the Fed 
nailed this landing, threaded the needle, whatever metaphor you want to use. That's clearly on full display over the last 24 hours or so. And listen, that camp might be right. And the people that have been bullish of equities are proven to be correct. I think they've been challenging this Federal Reserve to do exactly what they did in terms of some of the rhetoric and some of the language that we heard yesterday. Of course, the problem is, and I'm sure Stu has thoughts on this, I know Danny does, The what has been left in their wake still needs to be reconciled somehow. We're still talking about things that have not changed. So regardless of the language that you heard yesterday, and regardless of the euphoria around the stock market, the destruction that has been left with 550 or so basis points of hikes can't be understated, and I think yet to be felt. The dot plot shifted. Obviously, they only do that quarterly. So they basically shifted from a year-end target of 5.1% in 2024 to 46 The street was already there. They were actually already lower than that going into that meeting yesterday. Now the market's pricing in north of six cuts next year. So you got a window here from Powell to basically admit that, yeah, things are slowing, that, yeah, he's not going to even wait to 2% to cut rates. And they ran with it. And now they're pushing that to the extremes. What I find most interesting is they tweaked down GDP slightly. Uh, Not a big deal to 1.4%, I think, from 1.5 in 2024. But I still go back to when we turn the calendar, we still have the same amount of debt. And if GDP slows even more, if there's even a slowdown in the economy that I think people predict or some type of slowdown, but maybe not a recession, we're going to be right back to this debt to GDP issue and all these things, because that really hasn't been solved here. Yes, rates are lower. Therefore, the government can issue debt at a lower price, possibly lower yields. But again, I don't think it's enough to make a difference. So we'll see how that pans out. Stu, I want to read you a quote here. This is from David Rosenberg Research in his morning note. This is Thursday morning. We were recording this Thursday afternoon in the close. And Rosie said this, and I think this is really telling. Um, Let me just say this from my lens after sitting through the Fed's forecast and Powell's cadence at the press conference, the entire two-day FOMC meeting was spent discussing one thing and one thing only, which was how far and how fast to cut rates over the next two years. And I think this is the really important part. So this is his answer. Why did the Fed pull this mea culpa yesterday? There was no pushback even through the central bank surely knew that there was already being priced into the swaps curve. The answer is that the Fed is increasingly looking beyond the incoming and often revised economic data and focusing much more on what the business contacts are telling them. And this is also what Jeffrey Gunlock of Double Line Capital said right after the presser, okay, on CNBC with Scott Wapner. And I thought that was interesting. So was this pivot all about them actually trying to get ahead of the curve, seeing what their business contacts are saying, seeing the weakening of the economic data and getting folks prepared for the fact that when they cut, they may start cutting aggressively. I think that would be the first time in the Fed's history that get (laughs) ahead of the curve. I think that's all tripe bullcrap. I think we're coming into an election. I think we're going into an election year. I think that's as simple as that. And um, we've seen the Fed trying to tighten, actually, for the last year and a half in in a bunch of liquidity measures, but the Treasury, Janet Yellen, just outweighing it. And so really, the White House, the Treasury has control here. This is a liquidity-driven market. As I've come on this podcast multiple times this year, I'm like, look at zero-day options. Look at like the financialization and and the sort of leverage of all these things that are just really liquidity-driven. And so I think we got to this point where Santa Rally is really important going into a year 
year end and into the next year, which is an election year. Some of this stuff just doesn't make any sense to me. I think if you're pricing in six cuts, unemployment needs to rip for that to make any sense. And these business leaders are saying, hey, we're going to cut 10%, 15%, 25% of our workforce. Look, they've been bearish, I think, the whole year in the confidence board and all that stuff. They've been pretty bearish, but the cuts have been modest, right? And they've managed to maintain some earnings power like as they've gone through. Something doesn't add up. Either the equities are going to absolutely unravel from here, or you should be paying some of these rates. That's exactly right. There's a complete disconnect now, Stu, and I think you're right to bring that up between what the equity market is saying and what some of these underlying things that we look at are saying. I understand what you're saying in terms of Fed and election year. I can read around the edges as well. I'd like to believe that's not the case, but if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, effectively it's a duck. But my question to you and through the lens that you have, and I'm looking at the rate that the average consumer is paying on their credit card debt right now is north of 21%. I think that's up 2%, 200 basis points or so from what we saw a few months ago, number one. And credit card defaults are now at the highest levels we've seen. They're rising faster than the peak of the financial crisis, which is just factually true. So there is some huge disconnect right now, again, between what the Fed is seemingly indicating and what the stock market is indicating and everything in between. And I'll just throw this on top of it again. If Danny's right, or if the prognosticators are right, six cuts next year, what is that portend in terms of, I know there's, I'm throwing a lot at you, but I know you can decipher all of it. Like I said, six cuts, it just, it's basically saying it's the end of this market in some way, right? Something doesn't add up. Unemployment is doing really well and the ability to pay. Admittedly, every unemployment number that comes out on non-farms, it gets revised a month later, right? Always gets revised on a quarterly and monthly basis. But broadly, unemployment is okay. Participation rate, admittedly down. It's probably flat-ish over the last year and a half. It's certainly not going up, right? We can all agree that unemployment, even when you take the bells and whistles out and all pull all the levers, it's kind of flat-ish, right? Maybe the mix is a little weaker because people are taking secondary jobs and things like that. So I think very high level ability to pay when you talk about taking on exceptional personal debt and things like that is still there. And if you look at the trended numbers from pre-2020 or pre-COVID, we've basically returned to, to norm. So it's personal savings have drawn down, but they're still a little higher in some pockets. And then when you look at personal debt and credit card debt and things like that, yes, you're paying more for it, but the amount of debt that the, the country on average is paying, and this is, I think, my perennial problem with averages, is in line and on trend. So I don't see it breaking yet. Just going back to that last point, and it's a point I've brought up several times this year, is we do everything by averages in this country, and there's really a tale of two cities. There's If you are asset rich, and you have money in risk-free assets, or treasuries, or whatever it is, earning 5%, you're doing really well right now. You go to Basel and Miami, I'm sure it was ripping. I'm sure it was just fine. If you have car debt, uh, car loans, you have personal credit card debt, or you're trying to pay off stuff, and you're basically playing the shell game, you're in a lot of trouble. There's this tale of two cities, the tale of two Americas, just like in our politics, all the way down into the financial life of everyday Americans. We need to really focus the lens in two ways, not just, oh, on average, it looks like this. It's, oh, this group is doing really bad, but this group is doing really well. And I think that's how we have to look at it. I know Guy normally opens up the show with a movie or a song, and we didn't do that this time, but <laughs> I was thinking, I was flipping through channels last night watching the end of Braveheart and they got him up on the stage thing and they're about to gut him and they said just say the word it'll all be over so I'm like am I just gonna say I'm bullish and then they'll, and then just end all this pain instead of yelling freedom or whatever it might be but I go back to just when all this changed and all this changed people were looking for an excuse obviously to go bullish and when we were at 4100 in late October I think 
I can speak for the three of us, Stuart, not you. We were not excited the market was going down, but ready for the reset to be really constructive and be able to pick things. And what happened? Janet Yellick comes out with the auction schedule and the treasury thing. And all of a sudden, people are like, ooh, this is, she gets it. This is better than what's going to happen. I go back to these issues. These issues are still going to be with us. But let's talk about broader here. ECB met, right? They changed their language. They're going to now pull back on all their stimulus also at the same time. They're not going to be raising rates. Norges Bank went for the final time today, right? Norway. They finally went today. We got Bank of Japan next week, but the work's been done because the dollar is getting so destroyed that the yen is now strengthened to 141. But this is a huge opportunity for them, and their economy is actually picking up. So I will say this, as far as I'll separate being bullish from being wrong and being constructive, all those three things I think are very different. The consumer in the U.S. has been much stronger than I thought they would be at this point in the cycle. End of story, period. And the consumer is the be-all, end-all of everything. And the virtuous cycle and the wealth effect and all those things that occur, right, that's a very hard thing to figure out, and it all goes together. So long-winded way Way of saying great for the U.S. consumer, stronger than I thought. It's carried the load here. We saw with retail sales, which came out, but I just don't see a situation where, to the point you guys just made, if we are truly even three rate cuts into next year, forget about six, something's wrong, and that means the market's expensive to me. As we well, let, let, let's go back a year. Let's turn the calendar back a year. Right at this point in 2022, there were cuts being priced in 2023, right for some point mid year, and that was predicated on the fact that the consensus thinking is that we were going to be in a recession at some point in 2023 and the Fed was going to have to cut. And so it's interesting, Danny, that the point that you just made, I was thinking about a song that obviously Bruce Springsteen covered was trapped. As a pundit, I feel trapped because in late October, when the S&P had given up, I think it was down, let's say 10% from its July highs, it was up maybe 7 8% on the year. My thought, and fairly confidently, is that we were going to probably be unchanged at some point between between now and the end of the year. And that would have given you the opportunity as an investor to reset expectations. The sentiment would have gotten really poor relative to what has clearly been an okay backdrop for the economy. And so right now, I am certainly trapped as somebody who comes on every day and does podcasts, goes on to CNBC, because you can't just change your point of view. And so then I think about what we're talking about expected growth to 1.4% expected GDP growth. And we know that some of these readings have been a bit of an aberration in 2023. So most of consensus has been wrong. The folks who are perma bulls have been very right. And I'm not railing against them, but for someone like me to change my course right now doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense when I think about 2024, because it reminds me, and I've said this now for weeks and weeks, what's going on right here reminds me an awful lot of Q4 2021, also at a time when the Fed was pivoting. It's eerily reminiscent of exactly that. And you've brought that point up. And here we are effectively making all-time highs in literally all the indices you want to look at, except the small caps. And I think that's important. Again, I'm not clutching for straws here, but the rustle, the small caps are not backing up what we're seeing. There's euphoria around the indices. I get it. You know the names that have been driving us. I totally understand that. We have some participation around the edges, which is a good thing. Small caps are telling a different story. And to Stu's point, the one I would push back on, yes, the unemployment rate is basically moderating here. I'm still of the belief, though, you know, you get through these things. A lot of that last number, I think, strikes were basically cleared up. So you had some of that, a lot of government hiring. When you look under the surface, I think you're going to start to see, in my opinion, a pretty marked increase in the unemployment rate at a time where 
lot of these companies can't afford to see that happen vis-a-vis the consumer and those types of things. So it's a muddled picture at best. But to Dan, answer your question, the setup that we're seeing now is eerily reminiscent of what we saw a couple of years ago. I'd like to throw this out. And it's just like a, a theory. We had a failed auction effectively by the treasury, right? Remember the long end thing? And it was like the Chinese hack and they couldn't get it and all this other stuff. Maybe that's true. Maybe, I don't know. I'm not close enough to know. But wouldn't it be reasonable with the auction schedule and the treasury have now moved their duration from way out to way in and everything's going to reset. 70 some percent is going to reset in the next 12 months or whatever that is. Wouldn't it be reasonable to assume that if the Fed could talk really dovishly and get some bond supply going, that as the bond supply comes on, they get the bond demands coming in with this like new narrative and it's there for like a quarter or something like that. Look, they don't have a meeting in Jan, right? So this to me smell, if I was being a conspiracy theorist hat thing, I'm like, look, they're working together. This doesn't make sense. It stinks. That's what we're all saying in our different way. And maybe that's the reason why we're getting this. They need to shill some bonds and this is how we're going to do it. So they do have a meeting, I guess it's the last day of January, the Fed meets again, but I'm sure that it's somewhat coordinated. And that's the point I brought up when we opened is that we still have all these auctions to deal with and we're going to roll the calendar. I was looking back to kind of look at the first month of the year when the chase kind of began, that was about a 9% turn up until Groundhog Day. And then if you look at, you know, October 27th, which I know was a long period of time, it's almost six weeks. The last six weeks, it was another 14 or 15%. That basically accounts for the entire performance of the S&P, 22, 23, 24%. When we came into this year, last year, people walked in positioned very defensively. They were long energy and financials and basically underweight tech. That shifted. We saw that. I think when we go into the beginning of 2024, it's the exact opposite. I know we can get into energy here. People are underweight that thing. And I think it's going to be an area, especially if you're a soft landing person. So I think we're setting up maybe I'm not saying the market's going to sell off dramatically, but I think we're going to have a massive tectonic shift within sectors during the first quarter of the year for sure. Yeah. And and that makes some sense if you think about energy. Right. But if you're a soft landing person, you have to buy it then. But by the same token, some of the IEA data that's out just today is suggesting weak demand globally. I, I think we're all in the camp that one point four percent GDP growth might have two consecutive quarters of negative growth, which would bring that whole number obviously down significantly. So I'm saying if you are going to have a recession, then I think one of the last places you want to be is in the energy patch. And I think crude oil has been telling us that in this March from 95 down to, what did it get to, guys, 68 or something like that. That's the one thing. And so like a lot of those sort of defensive areas got absolutely destroyed this year. When we think of staples at one point, if we look at it, utilities, healthcare was an, an absolute disaster. Disaster. The Russell 2000 guy, which you just mentioned, small caps, which are obviously a lot of small cap financials and rising rates didn't help them, but also very economically sensitive. They have rallied 23% since late October, right? So they've basically done one and a half times that of the S&P 500, but they're still meaningfully below the 2021 highs. And they were one of the first kind of areas of the stock market, at least to roll over. So I, I suspect that we're going to continue to have lots of these different cross currents right now in the year end. And we're seeing this today. I'm looking at my fact set screen. I have Apple down in the day. I have Microsoft down two and a half percent. I have Alphabet down nearly one percent. Amazon down one percent. Meta down one percent. I see everything else screaming, right? So it's kind of rotation, even with all those massive gains in some of the biggest names in the market, right? Market cap wise and accounting for most of the gains year to date, it is broadening out a little bit. I'm surprised folks are selling them without the notion of waiting till next year to pay taxes. Guys, thoughts on that? Because we've had 
lots of rotations. Can this market continue to rally without the top 10 or 15 stocks? The, the math suggests the answer is no, because just by virtue of the fact that the size that those companies have grown to in terms of the importance just on a numerical basis, on a mathematical basis, suggests that you would basically need 85% of the remainders of the stocks out there to behave in such a way that we've seen these 10 or so stocks do. And I just don't think that's going to happen. And in terms of energy, I'm glad you brought it up because I know Danny and Stu have thoughts on this. Here's what I have difficulty reconciling. I understand that things are slowing. So by definition, the demand side of the equation is going to obviously be hurt. The supply side has not been as dramatic or not been as disastrous as I thought. The flip side of that coin is we've seen ExxonMobil in the M&A game. Obviously, Chevron's in the M&A game. We've seen it with Occidental. And earlier this week, we've heard, Stu, that Warren Buffett now, and I'm not looking to play stock market with you. This is more sector specific. He upped his stake. He now owns 27% of Occidental Petroleum. So on one side, you're seeing a slowdown manifesting itself in the underlying commodity. On the flip side, you're having people tell you it's almost never been better to be in the space vis-a-vis the M&A and vis-a-vis Warren Buffett. If I was, again, being like a cynical person, I love that because I do tend to, I've, I got the dark arts on that. If I'm Warren Buffett, I'm trying to move like, an RIP Charlie Munger, by the way. I've met him once. He's a lovely man. If I'm trying to play the election game and broad-based demand, that gets really political, right? Owning Oxy. You could do really well if Trump wins 24, right? And so that could be like that kind of thing because obviously the Biden administration has fundamentally changed fracking and, and a lot of American energy companies are not investing in CapEx and things like that. And that's why you're seeing, I think, a lot of the M&A come through because it's far more efficient to consolidate than it is to invest a ton more new money. And then by the time you get going in 10 years, you have another... White House that doesn't want to see it, right? So we've already seen those cycles in America before. So I think the M&A side of things makes sense into this election year, given the seven swing states are going to Trump at this point in time. So maybe it's something like that. If I was to play energy without the sort of risk of a slowdown in growth that we could potentially be seeing, look at uranium, all-time highs since, what is it, 2008? Something like that. I think that is fairly insulated from everything. I think that's another geopolitical thing where you're like, okay, people are just going to go back from the mix shift. We're just going to have to go back to nuclear energy to make any kind of like indent and in any of these emissions if we want to stick to these things. So I think that's not a bad play way of playing it. And then Oxy, I think, like you said, uh, Warren Buffett went double down, but it's gone through its 200 day, which is interesting, even with all the might behind that, it's still pretty soft. And then finally on the small caps, I think they're the most overbought, even though they haven't made new highs. And Bank of America came out with that piece saying that the next decade, small caps will outperform mega, mega caps, whatever. And I think it's most overbought in the last five years or something. It's interesting if it's really overbought and hasn't made a new high. Yeah. It's not great, is it? It's not a great... Down 20% from its late 2021 highs, but up 22% just from its recent lows. Um, Danny, thoughts on energy? Because this is a space, like Guy, you've been fairly constructive on. I don't think either one of you guys were pounding the table when it was very near those recent highs or so. You are obviously in the more dire economic camp. Do they still work in a very sluggish, let's say, 1% GDP sort of economy in 2024? Yeah, I think they work in that only because... Because I think they're so underweighted. So I think there's a level here. Again, unless oil literally goes off of a cliff below $50, I think that they're fine. Sue brings up a really good point. Geopolitically speaking, nothing's getting better. And as a matter of fact, not to get political, but Ukraine funding and Russia, we're going to, again, turn the calendar. That situation is going to be worse than it was when it started two years ago. And so what does that mean for oil? What does it mean for uranium? What does it mean for oil? I don't know. But to me, oil is going to have a bid to it because of that. I look at the XLE, which I know is at a very precarious point on the chart right now. But when I think about that Exxon's 22% and Chevron's 17%, 
I think of these two big deals that are out there that are both stock deals, by the way, for Pioneer and Hess. And I think to myself, these balance sheets are pretty clean, especially for ExxonMobil. What if they change things up a little bit? What if they realize that their stock was so cheap that they basically took advantage of rates coming in, issued some debt and made it part cash or something? I, I don't know, but I feel like the risk reward of owning those stocks with good balance sheets, with strong dividends is very good here. So I'd be long energy here, mainly from the standpoint of if you ask one person and they, okay, are you bullish? Great. Good on you. Are you bullish because you think we're going to have a slow or no landing? Yes then tell me how you do not own energy here. And then I want to hear their answer. And I'll throw this in there as well. This is just my opinion. And maybe it's, again, just reinforcing my dogma. But say what you want about the Federal Reserve and what we heard this week. I also think they've given the green light for a continued weakness in the dollar, which Danny touched on. And oh, by the way, a reacceleration of these underlying commodities that create inflation in the first place. Now, I want to talk about gold, but you just see the moves in some of these commodities today, and it makes sense, Dan. But the gold market, which a couple Sundays ago had that huge spike to the upside, only to reverse and then sell off an additional $50, is right back on its horse. And that makes sense. And I'm telling you, maybe that was a bit of a failed move a couple of weeks ago. But Stu, I think what we're seeing now is... Forget about equities for a second. Forget about all the noise. I think the Fed just gave the green light for gold to make a new all-time high. And I think it reinforced the reason why I think all these central banks bought gold in a record amount in 2022 and then followed it up in 2023. Yeah, I totally agree. I think now's the time for gold, mainly because of this, these two things. What is money, right? It's not treasuries. Again, it goes back to the auction and trying to get demand for the bonds of America. And the rest of the world is saying, hey, I don't think that's really good sound money. We're going to use gold. And they've been accumulating. And, and obviously, with the dollar now coming off to get, ironically, to get potentially uh, bond demand they're actually helping the other side in their, their reval of gold. So I do think that's going up. You saw Bitcoin. I don't know if you like to correlate those two things, but like Bitcoin moved pretty quickly. I was a little uh, reticent to, to sort of agree with the move. It was a short squeeze initially, but it's held and, and traded really well. X, all the other news of new money coming in, cleaning up the house on FTX and all that other stuff. And so watching Bitcoin go up first, I was like, okay, the dollar hasn't sold off. And then now we've seen the Fed and the dollar sort of follow. It felt for the first time in a long time that Bitcoin was almost leading. That was a real interesting thing. And I've watched Bitcoin since 2011 and it's not led at no point in, the, in its history. So I thought that was an interesting thing. And it does give me confidence about that gold view that you have, Guy. I'm like, okay, that kind of makes sense. And then finally, cable, sterling dollar. I think there's a chance that the UK may even need to hike one more time, right? So they're just off kilter and maybe it's a, you know what I mean? So you may see sterling dollar just rally with this soft dollar just because of the policy difference in timing. Now that may be ultimately bad for the sterling, but I think if you're, we're talking like a trading market, Probably a good long. I, I got to tell you, one of the most important things that I just might have heard of this whole discussion, you guys are much smarter on all these topics than me on this, but the fact that the US dollar, the Dixie, has sold off nearly 2.5% in two days, that is a massive move. And so bringing it back kind of to the stock market, guys, if you think about the largest contributors to S&P 500 earnings, right? So this year, this is per fact set, I think they had in their earnings insight report out today, consensus is calling for basically 0.7% EPS growth year over year from 2022. It was 4% in 2022. The irony is that when it was up 4% in 2022, the S&P was down more than 20%. So here we are, we're up more than 22% of the year, and we're basically going to have flattish EPS growth. But right now for 2024 calendar year, we have expected growth very near 12%. And so the one thing I would say is like, if we're all in the camp that we are going to see a recession, if we are going to see maybe consumer led, but then works its way into the enterprise. And as we're speaking right now, I see a 
Adobe down nearly 6%, okay, on a disappointing 2024 guide that they gave Wednesday after the close, I think you have to consider this. So if you think that 12% year-over-year EPS number, and if you just divide 47.12, which is where the S&P is trading, by 245, you get about 19 and a half times, okay? So if earnings start to come down, even if they're slow to come down, as we get into Q4 earnings season in late January, the S&P is going to be well over 20 times, which is well above its 10-year average. And so I guess the only thing I'll say, bring it back to the dollar, with crude down here, with the dollar down here, that's actually really good for corporate earnings. So there's some stuff playing around. So guy, just curious to think on that. Is there a way that the soft landing happens, the recession that everyone was expecting in 2023, and now some think 2024, but the markets are not pricing it by any means? Does the dollar move and does crude and some of these other input costs that have come down with inflation coming down, do they buoy S&P 500 earnings? Yes. That headwind becomes at best a tailwind, but you know, if nothing else, it just sort of, uh, I guess the the push and pull so baits and you find yourself on equal footing. But I'll say this, to answer your question about a soft landing, if in fact that's what takes place sometime next year, whatever that is defined by, it'll buck every single trend historically in terms of the data that we see known to mankind, not least of which, by the way, the inversion of the yield curve, which if we make it to February and continue to be inverted, will set a record for duration of the inversion. But history suggests and economic books will write about the longer the inversion, the worse the downturn is. And that you go back over history and that's proven to be the case. So I'm hard pressed to understand how this will be the time that for whatever reason we buck that trend. I think I heard EY from SoFi talking today about a lot of the cost cutting has been occurring already and it's helped earnings. And now you're really going to need the growth on top of it to have earnings acceleration. And you may indeed have more layoffs. You may indeed have more cost cutting. So I don't think top line is going to be great in 2024. To your point, Dan, what dollar does or other currencies do to impact that or the price of oil strength to the consumer, it really boils down to the U.S. consumer, in my opinion, is the be all end all in the health. And I look at their credit card debt and yes, their rates are not going down yet until the Fed actually cut rates. Let's not forget that prime plus whatever is really where all these rates are for the consumer, right? Yes, mortgages to a degree, but there's no refi cycle going on. And yes, maybe someone that was going to buy a new home makes that decision now based upon a 1% drop. Certainly it helps on the margin, but a lot of the issues that you guys are talking about and the guy was talking about, does it help the everyday U.S. consumer what's happening right now unless you're invested in the market? And Stu, you mentioned that. The answer is probably no. So again, I thought we'd be in a recession, even on a look back basis, as we look into 24 back, maybe to Q4 23 into Q1 24, that obviously doesn't look like it's going to happen. I'm not going to try to predict it here, but I do think that earnings estimates are too high for 24 and the multiple is too high for 24, Dan. Just going back to the oil price, I think we've seen, and it's surprising to me as a sort of generalist that the US is the biggest producer in the world still, right? So with 13.1 million barrels on average a day, Saudi Arabia is 8.9 million and Russia is 9.9 million. And that gas is equally oversupplied. Are we playing games, again, geopolitically, are we just doing this thing where we're like, hey, they're going to tighten supply, so we'll just, we'll increase supply. And we're just being buffeted around by these sort of really large games on the supply side. I wonder if that's happening. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, 
and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. we got to talk about the banks here because what's going on today, again, we have an S&P that's up 20 basis points, a NASDAQ that's up 20 basis points, but I look at the KRE, right, the Regional Banking Index. It was an area of contention, let's say, earlier in the year, and I see the KRE up 5% today. I look at some of the names that are even outperforming that. I look at some other like financially oriented sort of groups. If you think of the home builders, just look at this. Toll Brothers is blowing out. It is up 9%. It's up 112% on the year. The headline I saw this morning, and it looked like we should have busted out the pom-poms, is that the 30-year mortgage is back below 7%. This is a mortgage that was trading below 3% a year and a half ago. Guy, help us make some sense of this, like why you might be chasing these. Now, I get it. If you were putting Bank America in the penalty box all year long because of this held to maturity mark-to-market situation as rates were going higher, right, which was one of the reasons that caused the regional banking crisis, now you have Bank America that is up 6% on the day, it's up less than 10% on the year versus, let's say, a JP Morgan that's up 26% of the year. Wells is up 25% of the year. So some of the stuff that's going on in the financial space right now or, or those attached to rates is going bonkers. It's a lot to unravel there, but I'll do my best. We'll start with Bank of America. I think when 10-year yields, and Danny probably knows this exactly, but when 10-year yields reached 5%, their hold to maturity portfolio, again, this is all mark-to-market stuff. I think they were looking at a loss north of $115 billion. That was the zenith again, and they were being punished for that in terms of the stock price. So the fact that yields have come down as dramatically as they have obviously helps that, and it creates a bit of a tailwind. In terms of the KRE, we are now markedly through the levels that we saw in late July, early August. I think the KRE stopped that around 49 before it took that next leg lower. Now it sort of sets up for maybe some continued, you know, air pocket up to sort of this 60 level, which has been resistance a number of times. So I would look for that probably to continue. But the one that I really want to focus on, again, because Jamie Dimon at times, I don't want to say he reiterated, but he echoed a lot of the concerns that we have had, and those concerns haven't gone away. But JP Morgan, the bank, is now within whisper of its all-time high, I think made in the fall of 2021, right around $172. And it's been this slow and steady climb for the better part of the last, I don't know, five or a half months, or basically since October, let's call it that. So it's interesting to see. I'm fascinated to hear, and he will comment because somebody will find him and ask him what he thinks about the recent basically the rhetoric out of the Fed, the move in yields, and does that anyhow change some of his dire prognostications that he's made for the better part 
of 12 to 18 months. Yeah, so let's go back to the, the path for some of these banks and financials during the course of the year, which obviously we were all, I think, literally holding hands in March, wondering what was, what, what was going to be the result of that. I was actually with Stuart, I think, on that day. But Schwab, right? So Schwab, which is still down 14 or 15% for the year, you think about on March 8th, it was 76, dropped to 66, 52 in two days, right? They had all the issues that you're talking about, right? The cash sorting issue, the held to maturity issue. We're now back to 70 bucks again, right? Like I said, we're, we're still down on the year, but that was the poster child to me. Plus they got the benefit of the market rallying. So client assets are growing. Then you look at the JP Morgan you just mentioned guy, and there's a few other names I want to throw in there. JP Morgan literally, in hindsight, stole First Republic, right? They had credit guarantees from the government. They got their private client group. They got everything, right? So good for them. They could have known things would get rosier like this, but they did. Then you look at UBS. No one talks about UBS. The stock is up, I think, 60% year to date. They stole Credit Suisse. Granted, Credit Suisse did that to themselves. I get it. But you think about these companies now. They get to accrete all these things potentially. So if some of these issues are gone, that's a positive. And then a name that really, it's not a small market cap, but no one tends to track it. It's just First Citizens. That's the FCNCA, which bought Civ B. It's up 100% year to date. So you think about the companies and banks that were active in buying up all the messes. Like in hindsight, I'm sure there are funds that nailed this, but those to me are the companies that were doing stuff behind the scenes. And to your point, Carry is still down to roughly 8% for the year. XLF is up in year 10. Bank of America is basically flatter as we sit here, maybe up on the year. And Goldman Sachs is up 10. All of that kind of makes sense to me because they're all in various different pockets. But JP Morgan is certainly the standout. And I'd love to hear not just his thoughts, but he thought rates were going to go to 7% or 8%. So if he's not planning for that, I'd imagine that's going to free up a lot of credit reserves potential that they thought were going to hit the consumer. Not a lot. And again, one week or two weeks doesn't change the dynamic and change your forecast, but it will be interesting to hear him speak again soon, for sure. They're all done extremely well. Look, there was a lot well of panic. Well done, Diamond. Once again. Yeah, they can only grow organically all through this mechanism, right? They can't go out and get deposits. That's why they broke the the deposit threshold and all this stuff is because effectively they are the bank of, of last purchase, not lender of last resort, but they're the bank that you know, they'll scoop up assets if framed the right way from the regulators. And so those two th purchases, they really did win. And so their stock price reflects that. And the people in JP Morgan are very happy to be working with with those assets from what I heard. So guys, let's gauge, you know, for the last couple of weeks, we've been monitoring some of the kind of bull bear, some of the sentiment indicators, and they've literally been popping off the charts. Some of the overbought technical things are just off the charts. And so here we are, we're, we're December 15th. We know that we're gonna have basically two holiday shortened weeks, right? Towards the end of the month here, we have an S&P that's up nearly 23% on the year. We have a NASDAQ that's up 50, NASDAQ 100 is up 50% of the year. The NASDAQ can up 40% of the year. We get asked all the time, right? And we're not hedge fund managers, pension fund managers. We're not your broker. We're not your investment advisor, all that sort of stuff. And like, we just call it the way we see it a little bit. But a lot of folks look at this sort of reaction and they say to themselves, we're out of the woods. The Fed, yeah, I kept on hearing about high inflation. I kept on hearing about interest rates going higher. And that was weighing on consumer, my, my confidence, right? So guy, like, how do you think about you're sitting at the Christmas table, right? And, and it it feels like it's a grand year all around in the stuff that we are supposed to know a lot about, yet we're like, I don't know, man, it seems about as clear as mud, if, if you will, as we head into next year. Thoughts on that? Because narratives are important and it seems like there's a bit of euphoria out there right now and a really high dose of complacency. 
the all clear sign, mission accomplished, all clear, thread the needle, all those different things that we talked about clearly out there. I just don't, for the life of me, I don't understand how, if you really drill down and look at what's going on, the underlying problems we have, again, debt to GDP, I mean, we can rattle them off. All the things that we've been concerned about haven't gotten better. And in some cases, they've gotten worse. We could trumpet and we could be excited for the fact that seemingly today, it feels as if that needle's been threaded. But I will tell you this, there's a very good chance that the inflation dragon is not slayed and we start to see reacceleration, which is something I thought for a while, I think that's out there. And there's sort of this disconnect between the economy, the growth of the economy next year, and the implied earnings growth that the market seems to think we're going to get. Like Stu started this by saying something doesn't add up. And I'll sort of echo that by saying, to answer your question, Dan, something doesn't add up. If you had told me that the 10-year would be piercing 4% to the down a couple of weeks ago, I said the S&P was down. I would not have thought, right? I know it's a cart leading the horse leading the cart. It's really hard to figure. But this would have occurred. So therefore, with that set up, though, all things being equal, a lower interest rate environment is positive. I mean, it just is. It's a positive for anything you can plug into. That being said, it also has its limits, I think. And I am actually would think that in a healthier world, you would want to see the tenure yield to stop going down if you believe the growth was going to be coming back to some degree. So the Fed really, as everyone knows, controls the short end of the curve. And, and that's why it's so impacted and why there was so much volatility yesterday, pretty much in the entire rate curve, but certainly on the shorter end as people were readjusting their expectations. So again, it's going to be another fun year and we'll see how it plays out. But certainly these last two weeks are pretty much locked in. It's hard to see anything, God forbid, occurring is really going to jar. But if you're not worried about these types of moves in all different kinds of products and this volatility, and people don't pay attention to it when the market goes up as a result of all of it, then you're not paying attention because it could easily go the other way. And it would be chaos right now if all these things were working in the opposite. So I just want to, I'm glad they're not working in the opposite, especially this time of year, but I just want people to be aware of that. And volatility is just too low, in my opinion. We're going in a 12 VIX right now. So Stu, give us your thoughts there. I don't know if you concur on that stuff or not, but. <laughs> I, I do, I tend to agree with you more often than not. The I would just give like some of my conversations with people in the industry still, the trading floors, I'm sure you guys all, all have the same kind of similar connections. But in the interest rate, market for the US, the, the sort of narrative that's been going around is Federal Reserve did three insurance hikes. And I think that language and that narrative is really important when you talk to bond traders and things like that. That sort of signifies and indicates to me that when you see six cuts, then it's three cuts too many. I think the market has gone way too far too quickly. Maybe it's like stops or whatever. I think industry professionals in 24, probably back half, would love to see like probably three cuts. And that's like the insurance out. It's, hey, all the things you just mentioned with respect to regional banks and all that crisis and all that stuff. And what Guy said to type back at the beginning was how these hikes, you know, are starting to bite and starting to come in. I think there is a narrative out there where you could potentially start pricing in three and holding it steady just to see how everything's going, but not six. And so that's where I'm coming out. And so to, to Guy's question, what next year and into the end of this year, and I'll quote Bruce Willis from Die Hard, if I'm allowed to. Of course you are. If this is their idea of Christmas, I got to be here for New Year's. <laughs> I'm like, I think the party continues for a few more weeks. Well, listen, <laughs> I mean, the, the other point we'll make is the assumption is that 25 basis point cuts are going to be the cuts. If they have to cut, it's going to be more than 25 basis points, right? And so I don't know, man. The other thing is I'll just say, Danny, you referenced the fact that guy usually starts out with a rock lyric or something like that. I gave you one. I threw one <laughs> down and my main man 
and Stu was the only one who got it because he's the only guy who knows anything about Oasis. That's it was right. like, don't look back, back in anger. anger. You that's know what right. I mean? That's what we did there. I, I did. So listen, Stu, you've been a great partner to us all year long. And more importantly, you've been a great contributor to us. You bring a different voice to Guy, Danny, and myself. And we really enjoy having you on the Fed Week and everything like that. So we appreciate your partnership. And we'll see you in the new year, big guy. Thank you. It's been a wild year. And I, lo- I love joining you guys and uh, listening to you every week. I will say this. I love having you. I'll just mention, I don't know Oasis. I can't name a member of the Oasis band. I don't William know Gallagher? Yeah. No, okay. sounds like a, he sounds like a lovely Irish lad. Stu, we've reached the point in the show typically where Danny Moses, who, by the way, sits at 23 and 18 as we enter this week of the league where they play to pay, which is a pretty good, I think you would even submit, it's pretty good. But you know what? We want to throw it to you because apparently some of the lads are going to get together on the pitch on Sunday <laughs> in what is going to be a pretty big, important game. I have no idea. Honestly, I have no clue. But clearly, you and Danny. Let me do. give you the line on that, guy. So I, I'm sure he's aware because I'm actually going to pick this one. I want to hear what Stu has to say. Uh-huh. In the Premier League, yeah. Liverpool is hosting Man U, and it's a must win for Man U, right? I would think at this point. So the odds are this Liverpool to win outright, minus 325. So you got about 325 to win 100. Man U outright plus 650. You win 650, bet 100. But here's what I'm interested in is a tie on the 475 line. That's where I would put my money, Stu. What do you think about that? It's not crazy. Liverpool are one change away from probably being top and like maybe winning this league. So the one change away. Man, you have had a horrible run recently. And in fact, one of the only teams that lost to them is my team, Chelsea, <laughs> which was uh, really quite funny to everyone in the office uh, the other week. So Man, you are having a horrible run. I think it is a must win for them, but Liverpool are very good. I think your view on the draw is not a bad game there. That's not a bad, uh, not bad dart as they say in England. All right. Well, yeah. let me get to my football. And I just want to say that last week, I was one and two last week in both games. I could have been three and oh. You can always say that, except this guy, Doug Peterson, the coach of Jacksonville. Hold on a second. You, you, go know, do you know better than to say I could have been. Oh, this is a true mental down four. You go for two with a minute and a half left. Why would you ever do that? Anyway, I'm past it almost. But let me just get out of here. So Broncos catching four and a half in Detroit. Yeah, three straight road games for Denver. Denver could have, they should have beaten Houston a couple weeks ago. So I'm taking the Broncos in the points. Lions look tired to me. Bengals minus three at home against the Vikings. Another quarterback playing for the Vikings. Nick Mullins, Jake Browning. Looks like he's clicking with the Bengals at home. Give me the Bengals minus three. Atlanta. My old hometown at Carolina, only giving three. Atlanta's still playing for the division. Carolina's playing for draft picks. I like Atlanta minus three. And I'm going to go back to Doug Peterson on Sunday night against the Ravens at home, getting three and a half. And let me just say, two of those games, the first ones I mentioned, are actually on Saturday. We are into Saturday in the NFL now. So anyway, those are my four picks, guy. All right. We did it here, people. Stuart Sop, we appreciate you being here. Danny. Guy Adami, we'll be back next week on the Tape Podcast, on the Market Call, on the OK Computer. Check it all out. People, we appreciate you being here with us, and we'll see you next week. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.